Ahi, ahi, pai. Good afternoon. Welcome to the panel on RNZ National. Kia mai, mai, koutou katoa. Coming up on the programme, a coalition of more than 300 lawyers are taking legal action against the Climate Change Commission for not taking urgent enough action with its roadmap for cutting emissions. Professor Ralph Sims joining us to discuss. And more than 200 prominent women from around the world have written an open letter urging the chief executives of Facebook, Twitter, TikTok and Google to, quote, prioritise the safety of women on their platforms. Also today, who was the best and worst president in United States history? And the answer might not be who you think it is. American history professor uh, Peter Fear with us to discuss. And is paying for an extended warranty worth your extra cash? Consumer NZ's Jessica Wilson on the programme. And should there be an age restriction on smartphone users? No smartphone until you're 18 says one commentator. Mana Hedi today, uh, Joe McCarroll, editor of Gardner Mag- NZ Gardner magazine. Joe, kia ora. Oh, kia ora, Wallace. Nice to have you on the programme. And Michael Moynihan, former chair of Creative NZ, chair of the advisory board for NZTA, NZTE, rather, and company director. Michael, kia ora. Kia ora, Wallace. Nice to uh, have you, you both. Yeah. Uh, now, by the way, um, the, the panel's electric vehicle Q&A uh, we had yesterday with Professor Hendrik Moller. That is online. All 25 minutes of it, you just Go online to rnz.co.nz forward slash the panel and it'll be there for you to listen to uh, anytime uh, over the weekend, perhaps. Jumping into the Friday mailbag, and actually, uh, let's start with uh, the, the subject of electric vehicles because we did get quite a response to that. Here's one. Surely there should be a subsidy on e-bikes. Even fit people find they get fitter on an e-bike and use it more as there is less excuse to not use it compared to a normal bike, says Robert. Andrew said uh, one of the least mentioned benefits of using EVs in New Zealand is reducing the need for oil, which saves foreign currency over $3 billion at the moment. It should be a priority, not being dependent on the oil barons. Uh, And I know you you mentioned just earlier, uh, Michael, that you... uh, caught a bit of the, uh, the, yeah, the EV debate, yeah. but that certainly is an issue right now. Oh, it's absolutely an issue, and I think that the really good thing about what I heard yesterday was that the conversation is all about how do we embrace this rather than what's the problem. And you've got to ask the questions, and the questions need mm. to be answered. But there seems to me to be a real feeling that this is where we need to be going. And you overhear conversations from people saying, well, I think I bought my last... Uh, petrol car, the next one will be EV or, or I'm going to get um, I, I'm not going to have another petrol car I'm going to have, my um, son runs an e-waste company and they, they take oh, yes. e-waste, yeah right. and on Saturdays we, we run uh, community outreach programs where we go into communities and we encourage people to bring their e-waste to us and that goes, and what I'm um, and, and it's, it's basically people drive in and drop things off and move off and what I'm amazed at is that you just, there is no there is just e-car after e-car. And I know it's the target market. I know it's a collection of people who are interested. But they're just not unusual. They're not as unusual as they were. I, I actually, just as a symptom of change, I actually had the first um, tradesperson I've ever had come to my home in an electric car. Is that right? Yeah. yeah the, guy, the guy who came to fix my washing machine, who I know is an RNZ listener. So okay. ho- hopefully he's listening. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but, yeah, no, he, he was rhapsodic about yeah. how well it worked for him. And that would not be true for all trades. Yeah, so how, how did it that. work for him? Well, because he, he specialises in fixing washing machines, so he's not carrying, you know, a huge, a, huge, a, loads, a huge load right. of tools. But he said his costs had been, I mean, they were they were uh, probably 
less than a hundredth of a percent in terms of the cost doing That's driving amazing. all over Auckland. It's less than a hundredth. Oh, yeah, because he'd be doing a lot of driving. Yeah, driving from job to job. Oh, okay. And so it's interesting because you often hear that pushback from people saying, well, I'm in the trades, I need access to these vehicles. And so I'm just, that's one singular anecdotal example of mm. someone in the trades mm-hmm. who, who it is working for. He is okay. very happy with it. Uh, Graham says, as a car person, I was a significant EV sceptic. You just have to look at them. He's in his words. But in the last two years, I've done just under 60,000 kilometres in my BMW i3. Mm. Good for him. It's quite a nice car, isn't it? It's quite convenient and enjoyable, albeit just a little bit ugly. Uh, what? Well, uh, I, I've seen though they're not, they're not they don't seem ugly they to me. They don't seem ugly to me. No, um, uh, depends on the colour, of course. Yeah, depends, yes, exactly. It's <laughs> Maybe all about you got, got a pink one or yeah, one of those yeah. dodgy colours. Yeah. Fluorescent green. <laughs> A fluoro green BMW i3. Forever known as Kermit. Uh, No, it can't tow a boat and it can't drive the length of the island without stopping. It'd be total rubbish as a plumber's van or a farmer's ute. But as an alternative to the second vehicle the farmer or the plumber has in the driveway, it makes a pretty compelling case. So thank you very much. And that that Q&A is up uh, on our website. Uh, also, we discussed lowering the age of voting to 16. Uh, Sally Winley and Martin Bosley the, the other day on the panel, they, they both were not hot on the idea uh, at all, really. Uh, Hamish in Otipoti says, why don't all children get a vote? The parents could vote for them by proxy. It would encourage parents to vote with an eye on the future. I'm not convinced that people beyond retirement age are in touch with or vote with any consideration of future generations. Now, Alex says, as a 72-year-old, I say a big yes. Let them vote. The youth of today are awesome in every way and well-equipped to have a say in their own future. So around the panel, uh, lowering the age of voting to 16. Joe, I don't support that. I think you'd be better off to put the energy and time that that took into increasing the participation of people who were over 18 but under, say, I don't know what... But, I mean, the representation is really skewed. Like, people look in their 40s at the, and 50s are so much more likely of today, to They're so much more onto it than you ever were. That is absolutely fair and true, Wallace. Um, I, I just feel like at 16, I myself was not someone who should really have had much of a, a role to play in, in governance or decisions that would influence the nation. Um, okay, so we have Joe McGill, the, the, the democracy denier. Uh, <laughs> Michael. No, I don't think she was a democracy d- denier in her defence. I think she was um, taking a rational position. I do, uh, I don't, however, I worry about our democracy and the lack of participation. So if finding the, if inviting the people from 16 and above to engage actually improved the way in which the democracy was being managed. and Because although I don't know at 16 I should have been so in charge of So you disagree as well? No, 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 I agree. Sorry, oh. I didn't put it very well. What I meant was that actually if by bringing the 16-year-olds in we actually uh, got a better and more engaged electorate who were prepared to um, come alongside the issues and the policies, then I'd be all for it. I don't think that as a 16-year-old I would have necessarily needed my decision-making prowess to be the only arbiter but that's not how democracies work it's about a collaborative and a collective view and I just think actually uh, my my greater worry is that we're not getting enough engagement and if bringing the 16 year olds in might lift that then I'd be Do all to come it. back on that Joe? I, I think that's really well put Michael I mean I think that's the, the greater problem is the fact that we have 
not enough people voting in general. It's not that we don't have people between the ages of 16 and 18 yeah. voting. Um, now, and on... Uh, well, uh, we also talked about accepting that wages... Uh, this is Martin Bolt, he talked about this, that if we accept that wages for hospitality needs to increase, and Martin said it does as one of the, I guess, really the, 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 the one of the great chefs actually in Aotearoa in the last uh, 15 or so years, Bosley's, Martin Bosley's was fantastic, wasn't it? Uh, he said, that is fine, but be prepared to pay $7 for a latte. And Pamela in Melbourne, who listens to the show, says, Wallace and RNZ, your guest just mentioned that we should be prepared to pay 7 bucks for a latte if we want people to be paid fair wages. I wonder how many other OECD countries manage to pay more to hospital staff when food costs the same, both wholesale and in the restaurant. Australia has a minimum wage of $20.33 an hour. There's no excuse for the entrenched stinginess of New Zealand's low wages, is Pamela's view. Got a thought on that? Would you be, would you be willing to pay $7 for a latte, Joe? Um, I think that's quite a lot to spend on a coffee, but yeah, um, isn't it? But, yeah. but I but I don't think it's um, quite so um, inevitably causative that if we raise the minimum wage, you know, your your coffee will be prohibitively expensive. I mean, I think it's a much bigger bigger problem. I mean, yeah. I, I think the reality is we have to move beyond the the idea that the best thing to do is to pay less to people. Yeah. Like we have to pay people more. Yeah. And I don't think that's just true for hospital. I think that's true across yeah. so many industries. And it's a, a real social ill that people are paid not not just not much, but not enough to live life on. You know, yeah. that, that you can earn an absolutely full-time wage and possibly even more than a full-time wage. And you have not got enough to support your family. Michael. There's an argument that if we're all paying ourselves better, we can all afford to pay other people for what they're worth in order to get their services. Okay, I see. Yeah. Um, I, I just, I, I don't know what the answer is, but we have got to find the mechanism to pay, to, to raise the, the pay, pay in this country and uh, the way in which that pay has an impact. All right, very good. Tēnā kōrua, nō mai hoki mai, ānoki, I've been thinking. Joe, aha o whakaro, what have you been thinking about? Um, well, I've been thinking about, because I've been working at home today, and I've been thinking about how unbelievably cold you get working from home. And Compared I don't know to the this, office. I don't know if this resonates with anyone else out there, but I today was working at home. I was wrapped in two blankets. I had slippers on. I um, went to try and find um, my gloves so I could wear those because my hands were getting so cold. And it really brought home to me what people mean when they say um, how cold New Zealand houses are. What is that about? You can try and heat your home, but it's nothing like the... The, Heat, sort of, the sort of warmth that you have in an warm office. Warm ambience yeah. around you that you have in your office environment. And, um, yeah, it, it really struck me. And, I mean, I live in a, a completely insulated brick home, you know, it's and it's perfectly warm from living in based on my experience of New Zealand homes. But, um, but yeah, I just thought, I wondered if anyone else, that resonated with anyone, if you're sitting there, you know, wrapped in blankets with your breath frosting before your computer screen as you, uh, as you just <laughs> try and keep on top of uh, your emails. I, I think that there'll be a huge people that can relate to that. Mm. Uh, actually, that sort of, um, the, the difference between the home office yeah. <laughs> and the office office. Mm. Yeah, nice one, Joe. Thank you. Kia ora. All right, uh, Michael Moynihan, I've been thinking. I was, I've been thinking, I've been listening a lot, um, or it seems that, a lot lately. We've been confronted by people who are, in one way or another, disgruntled with the vaccination rollout. And, I, and I, I'm trying to be rational. I'm trying to think, well, actually, it's pretty much as I imagined it was going to be. It's pretty much as I was sort of told it was going to be, and it seems to be largely on track. 
and yet people are still unhappy and they're confused or they're not engaged or they feel they're out of the loop or something is keeping some information from them or something. And it all comes back to the, well, the common strands are the comms part of it. They put, one imagines, huge amount of effort into working out what the logistics of it all are, and that seems to be, you know, reasonably good. But actually the message is not landed. The, the way in which this is going to work, the way it might work, who you should hear from, when you should hear from, etc. And it just struck me that... And New Zealanders are pretty, I think New Zealanders are fairly content if you say, this is what's going to happen, this is when it's going to happen, and this is, we're going to do it in that way. But somehow, when you told the message of five billion people all staying indoors in order to keep out of, that was a simple message and everybody understood mm. it. But this somehow is so much more <clears throat> complex. And I guess it, if I, it, it feels to me like we've got to kind of stop do a short circuit and reimagine the communications again and sort of say, let's just let's draw a line on the underneath the fact that people don't and let's just be clear, let's have the three or four clear messages that we need to have. And sort of because in fact we've all just got to be patient. This yeah, is what, the was biggest it, thing it, we've ever yeah, done. Wasn't Derek Cheng who said uh, the uh, just uh, uh, he spoke um, briefly in a quite a long article about this about the just the extraordinary logistics oh, that each DHB huge. has to face with. I mean, it's really quite a significant. I mean, the largest mass vaccination program in our country's history. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, unlike other vaccinations, it might be quite a more of a moving goalpost. Uh, uh, so you're dealing with communication uh, with with shifting sands. Yeah. Uh, and you've got 20-plus DHBs. So, and, and he, so he it, under quite, quite, quite well, I think. So the comms are almost saying, we are dealing with shifting sands. We are dealing with what we know at the moment, and this is what we think it's going to be. You know what, I, it, it, I, ju I just think that it's somewhere in here, we've got to take stock of the message again. Right. Uh, nice, and be patient. OK, nice. Uh, thank you for your company this afternoon, both uh, Joe McCarroll, Michael Monaghan, and much to discuss this afternoon on Friday's panel. Do stay with us, four to five. Right here with me, Wallace Chapman.